Welcome to Get Up in the Cool, old-time music with Cameron DeWitt and friends. It's the final week of Get Up in the Cool month, the month where I release some extra special interviews I've been saving in hopes that you'll support the show. This week's friend is Adam Hurt, with uh, the special guest, America's Favorite Gourd. <laughs> That's right, Adam came back on the show to promote Back to the Earth, his sequel to Earth Tones, the iconic Gourd banjo album, which means that we actually really get to talk banjo this time and i love where the conversation goes we recorded this a few weeks ago over skype and i recorded my musical parts afterwards before i talk about why you should support get up in the cool i want to draw your attention to something even more important than your favorite old-time podcast the georgia runoff elections on sunday december 6th at 5 30 p.m pacific olympia indivisible We'll present Georgia on Our Minds, a 90-minute Facebook live stream concert of American old-time and roots-based music to benefit Can't Stop, Won't Stop, a Black Voters Matter outreach campaign. This concert, emceed by me, will feature performances from Bruce Molsky, Dante and Eros Falk, and former guests of the show, the Sassafras Sisters and Jake Blunt. This organization is the real deal. If you're not black, or from Georgia, and you want to encourage black folks from the state of Georgia to vote without making things worse, this is the way to do it. Give Black Voters Matter your money and listen to some great music in the process. That's Sunday, December 6th, 5.30 p.m. Pacific, in the Quarantine Happy Hour Facebook group. I linked it in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Shout out to Get Up in the Cool's newest Patreon supporter, Leslie, last name withheld. Thank you, Leslie. Your support means so much. And thank you to everyone else who signed up or stayed on this month and this year, for that matter. For those of you who have been meaning to sign up this month, please do before the end of the month. That will help me budget for the upcoming year of podcast expenses. And if you sign up or raise your pledge amount before December... I'll enter you in this little raffle for a Get Up in the Cool vinyl sticker for your instrument case or festival water bottle or bumper featuring original never-before-seen artwork for the podcast by Howard Rains. So go now while you're listening to this to patreon.com slash getupinthecool, link to the show notes on your podcast app, and choose a support level that you can sustain because small sustaining donations are much more helpful than large short-term donations. Thank you so much, everyone, for funding the show. And if you're unable to contribute financially, I understand, but you can still support Get Up in the Cool. Please spread the word on social media, Banjo and Fiddle Hangout, and other forums, trad and folk music blogs and magazines, to people that you know in person, safely, with masks on, ideally, wherever people might hear about the show. I think there are a lot of folks out there who would like Get Up in the Cool if they knew about it. And some of them, I bet, would give them show some money as well. So that's another reason to uh, spread the news if you want the show to keep existing, because I can't make it without your help. Stick around afterwards, and I'll tell you how to keep up with this week's guest, Adam Hurt. But first, here's our interview and jam. Enjoy. Thank you. 
be a rough interview because i'm just gonna be like so like relaxed and like not on after every tune <laughs> yay that's the idea <laughs> adam hurt welcome back to get up in the cool thanks so much for having me cameron that was so gorgeous i'm so <laughs> i'm so excited that you're making another gourd banjo album or that you've made it and that we'll get to hear it soon i'm thank you i'm not beyond long thrilled yeah <laughs> Earth Tones is iconic. I was just thinking while you're playing, how many people that I know that have, from, from all different instrument practices and like levels of involvement with old time, it's like everyone knows that album. And it's it's like anytime I hear John Riley, the shepherd, it's like, yeah, I got it from the Adam Hurt version, regardless Aww. of the, you know, who's playing and what instrument they're playing. They're like, yeah, that's where I learned it. It's the definitive version. And also I feel like that album more than so many other old time music albums, I think serves a, a function in, in people's lives, which is getting them to have a physical response to the music. Cause when I, when I listen to earth tones, and when I listen to you especially play Gord Banjo, uh, I I just have this physical response. Like, I, I think my I, I carry a lot of tension <laughs> in my body <laughs> for a lot of different reasons. And I just feel like, I don't know, I got a massage or something. Like, <laughs> Wow, I love that. Thank you. I'm going to try not to gush too much. I'm just, <laughs> I can't wait to hear the new album. When, when, did, when did you decide you wanted to revisit the the gourd banjo and have a whole album around it well i guess i've been thinking really seriously about it since uh the end of 2017 maybe and i really started to lay plans for the album at the end of 2018 uh i had been hearing from people virtually ever since earth tones came out back in 2010 
who loved the sound of the instrument and loved the way I worked out the repertoire to suit it and wanted to hear more, 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 more. Earth Tones Volume 2, people kept saying. And I was like, I don't know that I can do Earth Tones Volume 2. <laughs> I mean, how many people are truly going to want to hear a different version of the same thing? How inspired am I going to be by making a different version of the same thing? Am I going to be able to come up with a CD-sized collection of solo gourd banjo-suitable repertoire again. Not sure. It's not my typical repertoire, really. These are valid concerns. Well, thank <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, it I makes think a lot so. of sense. It's like, yeah. <laughs> thank you. But, you know, I guess I just heard such wishes expressed from enough people that I started thinking about the idea differently. Well, what if I record more with the gourd banjo, but move the project in an aesthetically different direction and a direction that will keep me inspired and excited through the process and not just feel like I'm reinventing the wheel. So I have to say, I think the one move that really sent me into serious album planning mode was Earlier in 2017, when Paul Coert, Brittany Haas, and Jordan Tice reached out to me and asked whether I would sit in with them for a regular gig that they were doing. It was a monthly thing at the Station Inn in Nashville as their guest one month. And they wanted to play Earth Tones repertoire. Oh, cool. Okay. It. It's all coming they wanted now. to accompany me on Earth Tones repertoire, which kind of blew my mind. Because with very few exceptions before that time, I had seen this as a solo instrument. And I had not even tried to merge it with other instruments, old-time instruments or otherwise, in part because this is tuned lower than a standard banjo, so the keys are all different and not always what other old-time musicians are used to. And also because its voice, I think, is easy to cover up. It's not quiet, but it has a very different sort of delivery than a steel-strung banjo with an adjustable tension head. It doesn't have a demand, like a right. lot of, like most steel-string banjos, but especially with a rim, mm -hmm. they're like, hey, <laughs> listen to me. Even if you're playing like really delicately, they, yeah, they, de they demand something from the listener. And That's a great way to put it, yeah. And the gourd banjo definitely doesn't do that, so I just wasn't sure whether it could successfully uh, connect with other instrumentalists. But when those folks reached out to me totally confident in this idea of collaborating on Earth Tones material, well, I figured these are the best musicians out there. They know what they're suggesting, and they know whether it's going to be a successful venture. So uh, I keenly accepted their invitation to participate in the gig and as soon as we started rehearsal for it i thought boy they're geniuses the ways that they're choosing to support the sound of this instrument without stepping all over it and without treating this like just one more old-time ensemble in yes. which the banjo just happens to be an unusual variety their sense of musical texture is like nothing I've ever heard before. And that kept the gourd banjo 
very nicely and comfortably in front, but without it sounding like it was just a solo thing. Hmm. So the gig was super fun. The preparation for it was super fun. And that experience made me think, okay, if I can line up the right sorts of musicians on the right sorts of instrumental configurations, maybe I can plan a project that's at least partly collaborative, which is what I particularly enjoy about the recording process these days, mm. sort of thinking through every aspect of the group sound or the duet sound in those cases, and sharing collaborations with my audiences that I wouldn't normally be in a position to do in a live show. Hmm. So that got me excited from one perspective. And then I thought, well, that might keep me motivated through creating a project, but is it, but, but is it going to satisfy the fans of Earth Tones who love the solo gourd banjo sound and that very spare aesthetic? And then it occurred to me, well, why can't I do both things in one yeah. project? And in a way, that's going to make collecting the repertoire that much more straightforward. I don't need a whole album's worth of solo material, and I don't need a whole album's worth of collaborative material. I can choose the best of the bunch from both categories. So then I just started jotting down possible titles on my iPhone whenever they occurred to me from my current repertoire or uh, on occasion when I heard a friend or a musical hero playing some tune that I may not already have known, but thought could be a good fit for the gourd banjo. And I'd say by late 2018, I had more options on my iPhone list than I needed for an mm. album length project. And then it was a matter of really working them out on the gourd banjo, discarding the ones that didn't end up suiting that instrument so well, thinking through the collaborative configurations that would flatter the collaborative selections most, and sending out invitations to my favorite and most fantastic musical friends. Hmm. So when you're listening for p potential gourd banjo tunes, what is it that you're... What are the flags that are raised when you hear something that that make you think this will make sense on this instrument? Well, as you know, my default claw hammer style on a steel strung fretted instrument skews pretty melodic. Uh-huh. And a lot of that approach doesn't really suit the nylon strung fretless gourd banjo. The detail just gets kind of lost. So in looking toward a sparer, more spacious arrangement of any tune, the tune has to be one that sounds complete, even when not played in an ultra-melodic style. Yeah. And for me, that ruled out a ton of material. It just lost too much when I transferred it to this instrument and started dropping notes and leaving more space. But I was also looking for music that the warm sound of this instrument, the uniquely warm sound of this instrument, would flatter. As you said, the steel-strung instrument has a demanding quality to it. 
and I think that suits certain kinds of tunes. The gourd banjo is like 180 degrees different in its sound and spirit, and I think that calls for a radically different category of material right off the bat. So those were sort of the criteria that I was bearing in mind. How much will this melody suit the voice of this instrument? And how much can this instrument with its limitations, if you want to think of them that way, do justice to the tune? And if the answer to both questions was yes for a given tune, then I started putting some dedicated time into really working it out on the instrument and determining whether it was as good a fit as I thought. I had to think a lot about the sustain of this instrument, whether I wanted to play it in a melodic style or not, whether it were fretted such that I could play in a more melodic style or not, this instrument has very different sustain from a conventional open back banjo, and it's not the sort of thing that I can just stuff more fabric into to kill the sure. sustain. Sure. So I was having to kind of embrace that sustain and work with it and design arrangements that weren't going to sound muddy because of all of that sustain. So that called for leaving out even more detail and choosing more carefully the sorts of detail that I retained. And it also called for slowing things way down, enough for the instrument to ring the way that it just does and not end up becoming a clashy mess. Mm. Now, I like slower tempos anyway, so my saying that I was slowing things down even more from my norm to suit this yeah. instrument uh, <laughs> is maybe an extreme statement. But I like where I ended up tempo-wise. And there are some slightly more up-tempo pieces on the album to the extent that I could go there without the sustain becoming a problem. I feel like, you know, when I see a contest fiddler playing something ultra-fast mm -hmm. and it's flashy and impressive i feel like hearing a clawhammer banjo player play something as slow as possible and it sounding good has basically the same effect which is like how are you making it sound so good <laughs> so slow because it's it's really really challenging to do i think uh in general on on instruments but i think especially with the clawhammer stroke because when you're going slow but you still want to maintain that, you know, hitting a drum kind of motion mm -hmm. about it. Uh, I I am just so impressed by <laughs> your ability to, you know, intuitively count all of the the, the pocket, uh, you know, that slowly and and to make it sound like it's not dragging and it makes it sound very intentional. Yeah, it's very it's very impressive. It's <laughs> I, I love listening to it. <laughs> Thank you. You're very kind to say that. I agree that it is hard to slow things down to the extent that we're talking about here and not lose the drive and not lose the fundamental rhythmic character of whatever the tune is. I yeah. think there's kind of a fine line there somewhere. And I'm not saying that my timekeeping is perfect at any tempo. Let me tell you, I was practicing a whole lot with the metronome leading up to this project, and it taught me 
a lot about some of my uh, timekeeping weaknesses. It does that, doesn't it? It does. It does. It's an eye-opening experience that every serious musician should have on a regular basis. But I still think that I managed to achieve a driving feeling, even at a very reduced pace on this project. And I'm pretty proud of that. I also think those really slow tempos do a lot of good for the sound of a special instrument. Some of my open back banjos, I think, have very distinctive sounds, and I love playing slowly there to let the tone of the instrument just carry that much more. But none of them sound anything like this gourd banjo, and that sound is what seems to have captured so many listeners hearts and creates that physical response you were talking about earlier. I know it moves me incredibly whenever I pick it up and just strum across the open strings. It doesn't take much to hear that special voice and to be reminded of how much I've always loved it ever since Mm. encountering this instrument first. So the slow tempos in large part are meant to just give people that much more enjoyment of the instrument's sound and to give the instrument that much more room to just do its thing with me getting out of the way and with the tune getting out of the way. With the tune getting out of the way. I love that. (laughs) Well, you know. (laughs) Yeah, I do. Yeah, that's... That's a great. I I just never heard it put in those words before. <laughs> hey, tune, just take a back seat and let let the instrument sing. Exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> it's like how um, some of the best singers sometimes you can't really understand what they're singing because it's like, well, if I put in all of these consonants, mm-hmm. it's not going to sound as good. And what are you really here for? Like, right. are you good here to comparison. hear me sing or hear lyrics? Yeah, good comparison. <laughs> totally. Before we hear. The next tune, did I ask you what that first tune was? Or was I just too busy gushing? <laughs> I can't you, you might have been too busy gushing, but whatever. I'm happy to tell you more about it. That tune is called Bowback. It comes from North Georgia. I don't know a whole lot about it. I don't even know if it was like originally a banjo tune. It does kind of have that feeling. Or if it was a fiddle tune. But in any case, I learned it from my friend Chris Turpin, who is a masterful old-time musician from that part of the world, and plays a lot of regional material. I don't Mm. know a whole lot about the Georgia sub-tradition in old-time music, but if this tune is very representative of it, I'm a big fan now. But I heard Chris play this tune on Instagram. I think, or Facebook, one a couple of years ago in an old-time two-finger style in the same tuning that I'm using, which is my favorite tuning on the planet. And I'm thinking, boy, that's cool. I'm always looking for more repertoire that suits this tuning. But I don't play fingerstyle banjo, really. Hmm. Maybe I can adapt it to claw hammer. So I tried my hand at it. I asked him if he thought that was an okay thing to do, if he minded my making some kind of piece for myself out of it. He was very gracious in letting me not only arrange it, but eventually record it. And it's the first track on the album. I chose it for that position in the sequence because I thought of everything I collected for this new project, that tune, both its melodic contour and its rhythmic sensibility, smacks more of earth tones than anything else I came up with. 
Yeah, if you're easing people into some of the things that are more of a departure, that would be a good introduction. Right. Yeah. Thank you. That's what I thought. I wanted to remind people of where we've been before yeah. we go someplace else. <laughs> That's great. I've actually, <laughs> this is so funny, I've actually taught that tune before. And I guess it's just been a minute because I didn't recognize it. Or maybe I was maybe I was letting the tune get out of the way so that uh-huh. I could listen to the tones. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Do you remember where you got it? You know, Brandy Pace introduced it to me because she wanted me to uh, teach it to her. Oh, great. <laughs> and I think she got some sort of source recording for it, I, w- I would imagine. But I don't remember where it was. Cool. So. I need to circle back to Brandy on that. I used an excerpt from the album recording of this tune in a promotional video that I put out a few weeks back. And she chimed right in and asked, is that Bowback? And I was so shocked that anybody out there would know this tune because I had never encountered it before. And Chris indicated that it was quite a rare tune. So I wrote her immediately and I'm like, you know Bowback? I love Bowback. I want to hear how you play Bowback. So she sent me a recording of her take on Bowback. It was fantastic, as you would expect. But I didn't follow up enough and ask more of how she came to fall in love with the tune. I know she's from Georgia originally. And I think she was like, well, what is the music from where I come from? And Uh wanting to connect with that. And um, But I don't remember where the recording was from. Uh, I'll have to ask her again. I wonder. Well, she found a good Georgia tune in any case. Yes. Yeah. Love it. So what are we going to play next? We're going to play a medley of a Kentucky fiddle tune, and an Irish fiddle tune, if you don't mind. That sounds great. All right. I like assembling medleys anyway, but I've also been listening to more Irish trad music over the past few years than any other genre. I don't profess to play Irish trad music really, but I sure do love it. And part of what I love about it is the way that the musicians assemble those sets of tunes. And seemingly very thoughtfully, the tunes sort of react to one another. So that's inspired a little bit different and more careful approach in me when medleys are being worked on. And I just thought the vibe of these two tunes complemented each other really nicely. The first one is called Horses in the Cane Break. I learned it from Bob Carlin's fabulous banging and sawing album with James Bryan playing the fiddle on that track. And the second one is called The Morning Star. It's evidently a pretty commonly played tune in the Irish canon, but I got it from Eric Merrill, who's one of the most fantastic yet unsung traditional fiddlers on the scene today. He recorded it on his Western Star album 15 years ago or so, which everyone should get a copy of. It's just magical. Cool, I'll check it out. All right. I always have to remind myself to play this more slowly than I think I should if I'm actually going to get away with the second tune. Here we go. Thank you. 
Good last chord. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Got to keep it dramatic. <sighs> that that tuning is so beautiful because you have the minor notes in the open strings. And even when you, I mean, you have a an amazing amount of control on the instrument, but even with your amount of control, they s just slightly ring sympathetically. Mm -hmm. And it, it just colors, colors whatever you're playing in, in such a different way than if you were just in standard tuning or something else with the um, the chord tones as the open strings. Thank you. I'm glad you understand it that way too. I just think it's a magical tuning and I'm always looking for more things that can be done with it. And indeed, even if I were playing the same notes that I would play in yeah. an open tuning, uh, it's such a different atmosphere, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And I guess it, it, it probably is accentuated with the sustain that you were talking about from this instrument. Definitely, definitely, which can be a good thing and a problematic thing, but uh, I'm trying to milk it for all it's worth. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so s speaking, of, speaking of control and uh, playing Clawhammer-style banjo, I've been thinking a lot lately about the culture and the hierarchies and like all of these ideas that people have about the instrument. And it also occurred to me as we were getting ready for this interview, um, as I was thinking about what I wanted to talk to you about, I don't think we ended up really talking about your banjo playing that much in our first interview because you were really excited to just share these Galax, uh, you know, fiddle tunes and you mostly played fiddle on them, right? which was awesome and super informative. And we got a little bit of your origin, but I don't think we really talked about much your you know your experience adapting tunes for the banjo because that's wasn't really what we were what we were doing mm -hmm. and i was thinking about how there's all of this <laughs> i feel like sometimes very gendered coding that comes with the banjo and when people talk about what good banjo music is <laughs> and especially when men talk about what good banjo music is they often talk about this certain quality of recklessness or id or just pure passion and and they don't talk about control and intentionality and um reading the room and all of these all of these qualities that um that are uh, stereotypically not like masculine qualities and i i sort of feel like that discourse has infected the conversation and <laughs> And I also realized that I don't think I've heard anyone ever criticize your playing. <laughs> Even, really? I don't think I have. I was just like racking my... And people talk and people talk shit all the time in old time music. And like, uh, I have some B-roll on this very, you know, on this podcast of people talking shit. You know, it's just, it's people, yeah, have opinions and they share them. And I don't think... So I just think it's it's sort of... It's sort of amazing that you are doing this thing on the banjo that is, in some ways, I per I perceive as being 
a subversion of this sort of masculine idea of what <laughs> claw hammer banjo should be old time banjo should be. Um, but, but everyone, <laughs> as far as I can tell, seems to be just totally in love with what you're doing. And, and I was wondering as you were developing your relationship with the instrument and with the community, how, how did that feel when you were thinking about what music you wanted to play versus what you saw around you and what seemed to be um, valued as authentic or, uh, or high level. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating. That's a loaded, that's a loaded question. I'll, I love I'll defer it. to you on how to answer. Uh, it's a big question, uh, but those are fascinating insights. Truly. I almost wish I had a rehearsal opportunity for this podcast <laughs> visit. <laughs> But I'll see what I can do here on the fly. So when I was first getting to know the banjo and the tradition, I was not thinking a whole lot about style. I was just trying to learn the repertoire. <laughs> and I was trying to learn it in ways that sounded like the people I was learning from. But then when I started being around more of the old-time music community. I grew up in Minnesota, so I was learning a little bit in a vacuum, but then I moved south and started going to all the fiddlers' conventions, and my eyes were open, really, to the, the spectrum that this music is. I noticed that there seemed to be certain banjo styles and sounds that were a little cooler than others. Sure. Even if the less cool styles and sounds I still really liked. I noticed that they like weren't showing up in the hottest jams at Clifftop, or they weren't taking top honors in the contest at the Galax Fiddlers Convention, which, which awards 10 places yes. for each instrument. And I'm thinking, how could these beautiful players with different styles not make it into the top 10 at all, or only make it into sort of the bottom three or whatever, contests are bizarre. And I they no longer are. put much stock in how they turn out, I've got to say. But do you got, do you still take your own uh, notes uh, for the contests at Clifftop every year? And you make better your believe it. Yes. You better believe it. That one is the exception to the rule for me because I just love everything about Clifftop so much. They've asked me to be an official contest judge a number of times. Anytime they invite me to do that, I will say yes, and I'll be grateful for the opportunity. But every time they don't invite me to be the judge, to be a judge, I'll still sit out there in the field and keep my own private score sheet just to see how well the judges are understanding what they're listening to. Oh my goodness. <laughs> There's going to be like a WikiLeaks someday, of, you know, <laughs> your notebook. I keep it uh, under lock and key. Oh, good. <laughs> okay, sorry. I just, I had to ask. No, um, that was hilarious. Thank you. You're talking about how, uh, how uh, contests are bizarre and how it's how the, you know, it's like the community deciding what we're going to value. Yeah, totally. Contests are bizarre, but they're just the opinions of that specific group of judges on that specific group of players that specific day. Even yes. if the same people on both sides were brought together 
on another day. The whole vibe might be different and the outcome might change too. But it just doesn't really matter that yeah. much. I finally realized when I mm. kept seeing all of these really compelling players who didn't seem to be doing super well in that milieu. Some of them cared that they weren't doing super well. Others didn't care. And I really admired that quality. And uh, I, over time, have tried to own it myself. I think I'm there now. It took some getting there. And I felt the same way about the hot jam sessions at Clifftop. I finally realized, you know, just because this jam session is made up of people who were household names in the music doesn't mean that the banjo style on display in that session is the be-all, end-all, clawhammer banjo style. It sounds great in that context, but is that what I should aspire to? And is that what any of us should aspire to? I would rather sound like myself. I would rather sound like myself. And it really took me a while to realize that the players I admired the most and the players I felt I was able to learn the most from, even if at the distance of a recording, were those who didn't really sound like anyone else. And I thought, you know, that's what this is all about. Personal expression. Why play an instrument if we're just parroting somebody else and we're not inserting something of our own personalities into what we're playing? People don't have to like it. People don't have to think it's right quote-unquote. People don't have to think it's traditional. It's not for them to say whether it's good or not. It's up to each individual player to decide for themselves, is this what I like to hear? So I threw at that point a lot of burdens off my shoulders. Mm. The burdens that I felt from the sort of standard claw hammer sound in the old time community. I realized that's not the way I play. That's not the way I want to play. So why should it be the way I strive to play? If that doesn't get me into some of the hot jams at Clifftop, fine. I'll find some <laughs> under the radar jams that'll be even more fun. Yeah. And if that doesn't get me into the top places in some contest, well, that doesn't matter either. If what I've shared with the judges and with the audience is something that moves me, played in a style that I like and that I feel I can own. I mean, I think one of the coolest things about the Clawhammer banjo community specifically is the diversity of approaches on display. Even as some loud voices say, that's not traditional, that's not the way Clawhammer banjo should be played, it seems like far more people in the community are open to all of this that we're talking about now and have been for a long time. Mm. When I'm getting students going on Clawhammer banjo from absolute square one, I'm really careful, or at least I think I'm careful, to tell them 
that what I'm showing them is what works for me and is what I was taught to do when I was first getting to know the style, but it's not the only way to do things. There's no one right way of playing claw hammer banjo. I tell them I think there are some counterproductive ways of playing claw hammer banjo. Sure. Don't hurt yourself. Right. <laughs> being the main For one. one thing, being the main one. And it's my job as an instructor to let students know if I feel they're heading in those directions and gently redirect. But if they choose to do things not as I would, but in a way that doesn't create problems, who am I to say they should play it any other way? And who is the community to impose aesthetic expectations on them or on me or on you or on any of us? Hmm. Blah, blah, blah. I don't even hey, know if that's the you, sort of answer you were looking you, for, but there it you is. You said you needed a practice, but I think that was, I think that was <laughs> lovely and, and very elegantly stated. I really appreciate that answer. Thank uh, you. I, I suspect that when people listen to your banjo playing and are deciding how they feel about it or what level of respect they have for it, I think anecdotally, my experience of hearing people across the board respect what you do and, um, and appreciate it and like it is because it is so apparent that what you are doing is something that you want to be doing and every single aspect of what you, the the level of intention i would almost say this is a weird way to put it but it's like kind of like watching uh, a relationship because you're it's you and the instrument that you're playing hmm. and you can hear the uh the consent between the two of you and it's and it's clear that you're not trying to make that instrument do something that it can't do and uh you're not trying to make your own instrument uh you know of your body and your brain and your ear and all of that stuff make something that you don't want to do either and i think it's just really refreshing to see and hear and i think the i think it's just evident in the way that you play thank you that means a lot Thank you. There's sometimes where, you know, high level players who have achieved something, maybe that success doesn't translate into other aspects of their life or their personality. But mm -hmm. I think there's I think there's something about what you do with your instrument that this is I, I'm just <laughs> this is more gushing and I'll stop soon. Uh, but <laughs> there's something about what you do with your instrument, Adam, which makes me feel like this is about something more than just playing music. This is uh, has something more to do with like how one could live a life. The amount of paying attention to your to your senses, paying attention to your desires and um paying if you're in a an ensemble, paying attention to the role that everyone is playing and mm -hmm. I just I I am inspired by your playing um in ways that go beyond my musical aspirations. Thank you. That's very generous of you to say. I appreciate it a lot. I really mean it. I'm really glad that you were one of the first people that I learned from so so many years ago. <laughs> and because I, I think even though I have, like you said, you know, like as one of your students, I may, I, I took a lot of 
what you did. I took it as gospel truth, you know, and, and, and I applied it. And over time, I found my own relationship with my instruments and, and what I wanted and, and adjusted accordingly. Mm-hmm. But you really set me in the right direction. And <laughs> the thing that was really, really helpful is that you were saying things that you believed hmm. um, when and, and that were true when you were teaching um, in the, the workshops that I got to take with you. And and I'm really grateful that I got that information when I did. Thank you. I'm so happy to hear that it worked for you and uh, gave you something useful to work with. I remember those early encounters. Uh, Banjo Camp North 2013, Nashville Clawhammer Camp 2014, like before you were really in circulation out there in the old time community, right? Yes. Yeah. I knew you when. Yeah. (laughs) Love it. Love it. Uh, Honored to hear that from you. Uh, (laughs) So... Okay, we should we should play another tune. What what are what's next on the list? I have another one that I want to play in this tuning, and then we'll move the instrument around a little bit. Uh, this is a tune called Biddy. It comes originally from Eden Hammonds from West Virginia. You're a fan. I see you nodding on Skype. You love yes. Biddy. Oh, good. I love Biddy too. I was introduced to this tune by my dear friend Stephanie Coleman. I think Stephanie is perhaps the finest all-around old-time fiddler on the scene today, even Mm. though she's a little bit off of people's radar. Her tone, her taste, her touch just can't be beat. I had heard the Ed and Hammonds recording of this tune, and I thought it was fine, but I wasn't inspired, necessarily, to learn to play it until I heard Stephanie play it. And she just plays the hell out of it. You've got to experience it one day. It's one of her signature tunes, and I'm very, very grateful to her for sharing it with me, both generally and on the gourd banjo here. It's the perfect sort of tune for the gourd banjo. It's sort of a variation on Brushy Fork of John's Creek, Mm -hmm. which was one of my favorite tunes from the Earth Tones repertoire. So... I guess in that way, maybe this tune is reinventing that wheel a little bit, but I think it's different enough to to not count as just another version of the same thing. So here's a little bit of Biddy getting into a spooky mood. Thank you. 
I love your variations, Adam. Thank you. I hope I'm not taking too many liberties. I I don't know, even know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. How do you how do you go about arranging old time music? Well, I first think of how little I can do to disturb whatever I've identified as the fundamental melody of the tune while still introducing some change. So often that takes the form of leaving things out rather than putting more stuff in. Sure. And then I think about a jam session at Clifftop and what I describe to my students asking similar questions as the passerby test. I love to hear variations on themes in old-time music, but I think that idea can be taken too far. I think bluegrass-style improvisation is a different thing. I think jazz-style improvisation is a different thing. In both of those cases, jazz much more than bluegrass, the players are working with the chord progression, and it's kind of like anything that goes with that chord progression is fine. That feels uncomfortable to me in old-time music, where so much of the interest of the music is the melody of whatever tune we're playing. And it's the sometimes minute differences between these melodies that keeps us engaged with the canon. It's not so much about the musicians showing off their chops. Look at me. Look how far I can take this solo in an unexpected direction. So I imagine sitting in my jam session at Clifftop with people walking back and forth on the road in front of me. And let's say if they're continuing to walk and not meeting a friend on the road and stopping and chatting for an hour, that for 30 seconds, give or take, each person is within earshot of my jam session in my canopy. So wherever my jam is, in the tune, whether we've just gotten going, whether we're just about to finish, or we're somewhere in an eight minute long jam down of something and loving every second of it, I want that passerby in the 30 seconds that they can hear the session to recognize what the tune is. Mm. I want the melody player, no matter how far they may be choosing to stray from that fundamental melody, to still be expressing enough of the essence of the tune and doing so often enough that that passerby has some landmarks, that it just doesn't sound like free improvisation. And I try to abide by that rule, if you want to call it such, in my own work. Uh, Sometimes I go farther afield from the fundamental melody than others, but if I do, I don't want to spend too much time going in that direction before I take us back home and strike up some more familiar melodic contours. Sure. You wouldn't want the person passing by your canopy to the entire time, just somewhere in there, they're going to be like, oh, that's Biddy. Precisely. Precisely. (laughs) Maybe it'll take a while because maybe you're on a little excursion, but you're going to get back before they've gotten out of your shot. Exactly. And if they're gone by the time we circle back, that's going a little too far for my taste. Mm. It really is. And then sticking with that basic rule, what I often like to do is sort of pick a theme for each section of my arrangement. So that theme could be 
syncopated space. Or that theme, maybe more on a fretted steel strung banjo than the gourd banjo, could be increasing rhythmic density. Or sort of under the heading of increased density, I might explore an arpeggiated feeling. Yeah. Or I might do more travel up and down the scale than the original melody even does. Or I might pick a maneuver on the banjo and orient a section of the arrangement around that maneuver. I love the Galax lick, so I might try to figure out every possible way of using the Galax lick in this span of time in the arrangement. And from there, I come up with a lot of ideas that don't sound that great to me sure. and discarded, but <laughs> yeah. I keep the ones that I end up enjoying and uh, tend to make them part of whatever I record when the time comes for that. Yeah, that's. I think that's a great. That's a great guideline for figuring out how to engage with this music and express individuality, and not just ex, not only express the tune, but I think it's. It's not necessarily like a. The tune is is the valuable thing. Is the thing that's interesting. So we don't. We want to honor the tune. It, not that you wouldn't feel that way, but it's. It. I think what you're saying is that there aren't the same things to grab onto in an old-time fiddle tune that there are in jazz or bluegrass. Those have mm -hmm. like concrete chord progressions with harmonic tension that leads in a specific direction. Mm -hmm. And just most old-time fiddle tunes don't have that. So <laughs> it's not you're not talking about some sort of purity. You're you're literally saying like uh without being anchored onto some sort of contour or idea of what the melody is, mm -hmm. what are you doing? And it, it won't be clear. And there's nothing to base uh, an evaluation. There's no anchor. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I, I'm going to think about that and maybe steal that a little bit when I'm, <laughs> when I'm teaching, because <laughs> I think that's a lovely idea. <laughs> Please be my guest. Thank you. I should say too, that, I put a heavy, like, bolded set of quotation marks around the word arrangement when I'm talking about such things. I mean, I want a recorded rendition of, of something to come out a pretty specific way, and a live performance of the same thing doesn't have to achieve such a state. I mean, why would it, unless someone out there is recording and comparing it against the, the commercial version? I don't know who would. But what I'm getting at is, even as I'm being very thoughtful about setting up an arrangement and these thematic choices that I'm making and whatnot, I sort of work out what I describe as ear-catching motifs that I often want to place in designated locations mm. across the arrangement. And I'll try my best to commit those locations to memory and to have them come out that way every time I play the tune. But I'm not arranging every last detail of the tune. For one thing, that would take forever. For yes. another thing, I'd never remember it. I just wouldn't. And I'm not wanting to look at a piece of tablature while I try to play in a musical sounding way. And finally, I want to leave myself room 
to play to a certain extent as the spirit moves me hmm. at a given time. And if whatever I'm playing is too highly choreographed, it doesn't leave much room for that off-the-cuff expression. So even the stuff that I arranged for Back to the Earth, the new recording project, some of the more minor, less ear-catching details came out quite differently on every take we made in the studio. And even as well as I've gotten to know the keeper takes from all of the selections on the project since I laid them down, now when I'm playing some of them for you or for someone else or for my own enjoyment, same deal. Those ear-catching motifs are still present, and hopefully they're still kind of sequenced in the way that I had in mind, but a lot of the connective tissue is different, and I like it that way. It's funny, though, to sometimes work with a student who has put one of my recorded renditions under the microscope, <laughs> and they'll be like, why did you play that note there? And I'm like, what note are you even talking about? I made that recording however many years ago. I haven't listened to it for who knows how long. And that's just how I managed to play that section of that arrangement at that moment. And the next take might have had a different note in that position. It really doesn't matter yeah. as much as you think it does. <laughs> I I literally just sent an email to Paul Brown asking him what what was he what he was doing in a recording that was made like 30 years ago with Tommy <laughs> Gerald. And I was like, I know this is stupid, but I gotta know. <laughs> you know, you know whereof I speak. Love yeah. <laughs> You'll have to let me know if you hear back from him or if he says, I have no idea what I did 30 I years did, ago. I did. And honestly, he, he gave me all the exact an answers that, that I wanted. And it was oh, kind of great. amazing. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. Well done, <laughs> Paul Brown. <laughs> At least for that individual recording of Jimmy Sutton. Um, he knew what he was doing and remembered. That's really refreshing to hear you say, Adam, because I've... I've been painting this narrative and I hope this, I, I don't mean to paint you in a box and I'm glad that you've burst out of it if I have, which is <laughs> that you have this like high level of intentionality and that you're making all of these like kind of measured choices. I really like hearing that you've, you've created these boundaries and uh, aesthetic boundaries that you want to be there so that you can stretch out inside them and uh you have a few moments that you're like yes this is what i want to happen at this at this point mm -hmm. but and also i always appreciate appreciate any um as the spirit moves you i, I appreciate you know qu uh, quaker idioms <laughs> i thought that might speak <laughs> yeah. to you yeah <laughs> so <laughs> uh because yeah that's important too and uh it, it would be really difficult to memorize what you just did <laughs> It exactly. would be. And I think so much would get lost in just reciting that over and over again. I think one would probably be able to hear your brain whirring and trying to remember which which combination is coming next. You know, which individual, like, minute variation. Exactly. Exactly. And I have that very experience myself sometimes when I'm trying to get through like a first draft of a, mm. a nice arrangement. And if I find myself stressing out as I play over, okay, what pattern is coming up next? What right hand pattern do I have to prepare for? And am I going to be able to get through it? I try to take a step back and be yeah. like, you know, that's just... <laughs> 
too far. Let's let's get that complexity out of the mix and come up with something that I can just play through in a more natural, less calculated way. Yeah, you can always tell when someone's playing and their brain is actually thinking about the way that like the cedar wood paneling or whatever smells in the room as opposed to, oh shit, here comes that part. <laughs> like, exactly. Am I going to make it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't want to fall into that trap. That's just not a very fun place to be making music. Hmm. So we have we have one tune left uh, before we talk about where to get the new album. Uh, what do you want to play next? I would love to play a waltz next. I Is this the one that you just waltzes. posted today at the time of recording this? You know, funnily enough, it's not. Oh, another I waltz. love waltzes so much, I made room for two of them on Excellent. this project. <laughs> I think a claw-hammered waltz is a really underrated thing. I know so many otherwise very capable claw-hammer players who sort of default to a homegrown finger style whenever something in 3-4 time comes up, and that's fine, but many of them seem to be making that choice because they don't feel the claw-hammer stroke works for that time signature. Hmm. I think there's like nothing better than the claw hammer stroke for three, four. And I hmm. wish I had a larger repertoire of waltzes. But in any case, I want to encourage all claw hammer players listening in to work out some nice waltzes. It's easier than you might think, and it just sounds and feels so good. So the waltz that I posted online earlier today is the Raven's Rock, fantastic contemporary Irish tune that I just fell in love with and will never fall out of love with. This is a very different sounding waltz, but I love it all the same. This is called Wolves in the Wood, hmm. and I learned it from the playing of Trisha Spencer and Howard Rains who make such beautiful music together. Everybody should buy all of their CDs right yes. now and learn all of the tunes on them. They just collect the best repertoire. I had heard this tune occasionally before they recorded it, but I had never really thought about learning it or even getting to know its intricacies until they laid it down. There was something about their approach to it that really spoke to me. So in trying to find out more about the tune, I learned that they had collected it from an early Texas fiddler, like pre-Texas style, as they do, a legitimate old-time fiddler from the state of Texas. And I found out that before it made its way to Texas, it existed in West Virginia long ago, so long ago that according to Wilson Douglas, it had died out in West Virginia. Or did, was, <laughs> or did it. Or did it, right. He was very surprised to hear it brought back by huh. a festival player many years later because it wasn't something he had run into in a long time, even though it was at one time a West Virginia tune. Cool. So it's kind of cross the country and come back again. I love that. Wolves in the Wood. Thank you. 
Fun, a crooked waltz. A crooked waltz, even better. Yes. <laughs> and the one online today was another crooked waltz. I mean, how many of those are actually out there? But they're so exciting, right? <laughs> yeah, because you're you're starting to lilt and to like tune it out, and then it's like, ah, ah pay attention. Yep. Catches you completely off guard. Or you're going Love to step it. on your partner. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Watch out, partner. <laughs> So we have one tune left, but before we do that, where do we go to get this album and also to keep up to date with everything that you're doing and find out what's next when the news drops and uh, take lessons with you, all that stuff. Thank you. Adamhurt.bandcamp.com is the place to go for the new album. Album releases on November 13th lucky friday the 13th but mm. it's been available for pre-order for the past several weeks and i'm very excited by uh the showing of support that the community has given it already even before they can listen to all the sound samples so it's available as a physical cd and as a digital download through bandcamp love bandcamp my website adamhurt.com is a good place to find out what I'm up to, even though there aren't gigs and camps and things happening right now, it's amazing how much of that world has moved online. Yeah. So even while stuff is still shut down in an in-person kind of way, if I get involved with online events, those will be posted to my events calendar on the website. And of course, once camps can restart, all of my camp engagements will be there too. If folks are interested in private instruction, please reach out to me through the contact form on my website. At the moment, my student roster is over full, but I would be glad to add folks to the waiting list and let you know just as soon as my availability improves. Sounds good. Thank you. Thanks so much for doing this. It was really lovely to talk with you and uh, it, it will, it's been lovely to hear you and then eventually to jam with you asynchronously because that's what we're doing these days <laughs> that's what we're doing these days indeed thank you cameron it's really been a pleasure to visit with you yeah what do you want to do for the last tune i thought it would be fun to revisit a tune that we played together when you first invited me onto your podcast I love the tune. It happens to be on my new album. I love it that much. Hmm. And I can't tell you how many people, students and non-students alike, have come to me excited about having learned this tune 
thanks to hearing it on your podcast. Ah, so glad. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those tunes that's actually quite uncommon, but very ear-catching and very accessible. It's the kind of tune I'm always looking for to bring into, like, music camp jam sessions. So we're not just playing the t same tired old tunes, but people are still feeling comfortable about stretching out on something they've never heard before. It's a fine tune, Lily of the Valley from Luther Davis. What do you say? Sounds good. Okay, and won't you join me yes. on it? Here it comes. <laughs> Great. <laughs> visit Adam Hurt's website at adamhurt.com to contact him for lessons and hear Adam Hurt news. You can and should buy Back to the Earth at adamhurt.bandcamp.com. My CD came in the mail the week after we recorded our interview, and I haven't turned it off yet. It's incredible. You have to hear it. 
go get a copy, digital or physical. Support Get Up in the Cool at patreon.com slash getupinthecool. And don't forget about the raffle for the sticker with original Get Up in the Cool art from Howard Rains. All you need to do to enter is sign up at the Patreon or raise your pledge amount before December. Thanks for supporting the show, everyone. Don't forget to come out to Georgia on Our Minds, December 6th at 5.30 p.m. Pacific in the Quarantine Happy Hour Facebook group. I said, come out to this event metaphorically. It's online. I hope to see you there, digitally. (laughs) You can order a mask, t-shirt, bag, sticker, or phone case at Get Up In The Cool's merch store. Make sure to like and follow Get Up In The Cool on Facebook so you can see the video I posted from this episode and share it with everyone you know. Visit pitchforkbanjo.com for my instructional banjo series. Check out my other podcast, Think Outside the Box Set. It's available in all the same places as Get Up in the Cool. We just finished season 15. If you enjoy this show, at least the half of it that I'm on, then there's a good chance you'll enjoy Think Outside the Box Set as well. Go check it out. Season 15, it's all about Taylor Swift. Season 1, We listen to all the albums of Garth Brooks. It's a really silly show that has some wonderfully serious and incisive moments. I'm really proud of it. I hope you go check it out. Again, everything I just mentioned is linked in the show notes for this episode in your podcast app. That's all for now, friends. Thanks for listening. Come back same time next week to Get Up in the Cool.